Welcome to Divorce Dialogues. I'm Katherine Miller. Divorce Dialogues brings expert guests to the airways to talk through your divorce questions and fill in the gray areas about separating. From thinking about divorce, to how to behave during divorce, to what to do after, this is Divorce Dialogues. Welcome to Dialogue on Divorce. I'm Katherine Miller, founder of the Miller Law Group and director of the Center for Understanding in Conflict. And I'm on a mission to change how people divorce and help them divorce with dignity. My guest today is Suzanne Brunsting, a collaborative attorney and mediator, uh, an attorney with more than 35 years of experience and who limited her practice to collaborative law, mediation, and settlement advocacy since 2004. She's a founding member of the Collaborative Law Association of the Rochester area and first president of that organization. And Sue has been involved in collaborative law and mediation trainings for years. And in fact, one of the reasons, Sue, that I invited you to be on this show today, besides your stellar uh, reputation and standing in the collaborative community, is that you were my first trainer in the collaborative model and you were, I'm forever grateful to you for introducing me to that model and really changing my life. So welcome to the show. Oh, Catherine, thank you very much. And so why don't you tell us a little bit about your introduction? So you were my introduction to the show. You know, somebody said to the model, somebody suggested to me that I come take the collaborative training. And I was extremely suspicious that it could really be any different than anything I had experienced before at that time, since it was going to be, and at the time it was, just a bunch of lawyers sitting around negotiating. I'd had frustratingly experienced that model of lawyers talking without a lot of success, or at least without a feeling of flow for years. And within 15 minutes of coming in and meeting you and Du Webb, who's also been a guest on this show, I felt like I was coming home, and it was an amazing experience. And so I'm interested to hear about your initial exposure to the collaborative model. Oh, well, thank you. And my my initial exposure was very, very different. I had been a litigator for 20 years by 2001, and the more experienced I was as a matrimonial litigator, the more difficult and contentious the cases were that were referred to me. I had also represented children in court in custody battles, and I saw the damage that making their parents be opponents to fight over them caused to those children. So in the spring of 2001, an associate in my office brought information he'd found on the internet about collaborative law and said, Sue, I think you'd be interested in this. And that night, I got online and read everything I could find about collaborative law. And it was ringing a bell, a way for lawyers to do what they do best and limiting the ability to turn litigious. About 10 o'clock at night, I found a website from Minnesota with 45 members of a collaborative law group. And there was an asterisk by one man's name, and it said, practices collaborative law exclusively. And I thought, Mm -hmm. oh my gracious, can you do that and, and survive as a practitioner? Does it really work? And so I emailed him, and he emailed me right back. And later that night, I I was up very, very late. I was composing another email to him, understanding now after reading about collaborative law that you can't do this alone. There has to be another collaborative lawyer at minimum. We need a group in Rochester, and I think I need to start it. 
And so the gentleman I was emailing was Stu Webb. He has been so gracious and so giving of his time to get this idea off the ground and started. So what Stu said is you don't have to reinvent the wheel. I'm going to send you all of Minnesota's documents. And if you've got any questions as you go along, please let me know. And an envelope appeared in the mail a few days later with a note in pencil up in the corner that says, we're having a training for collaborative law, June 8th and 9th, 2001 in Washington, D.C. And it said, please come. And I was on the plane. I was so excited to go. And just as you walked in the room, Catherine, with Stu and me caring very deeply about this process and bracing it, the training there in Washington was the same. It was collaborative practitioners, Stu, people from California, and the training just knocked my socks off. So I came back to Rochester really on fire and gathered together a very small group of lawyers I thought I could trust, <laughs> maybe maybe 12 or 15 lawyers. And we started meeting, and the group kept expanding over the summer of 2001. And we brought a trainer from Cincinnati in November of 2001 to train 30 lawyers. And that was the very beginning of our group in Rochester. You know, what you're saying is interesting. And we both laugh when you say, I pulled together a very small group of lawyers <laughs> I felt I could trust. And, you know, of course, there are people who think that that's number zero. <laughs> but But within the profession, why was it? that you felt like you needed lawyers you could really trust? There is a vulnerability in collaborative practice. There's no place to hide. We are at a table open with two clients, two collaborative lawyers, very often a, a neutral or two as a part of the case. And it is so important to have the professionals at first and then the clients be congruent, be able to to think and say and speak and believe and feel all in line. That there is no hiding. There, uh, there's no room for lying. There's no, there's no room for any of that. So, in order to be that kind of practitioner, I needed to be vulnerable. And so, I wanted to be sure that the folks who came and did this training and undertook to be collaborative practitioners were people I could let my guard down with. Yeah. So it's so interesting because I can imagine that people contemplating divorce and feeling like they need protection and feeling vulnerable themselves might feel, well, wait, I don't want my lawyer to be vulnerable. I want them to be an advocate for me. I want them to be a protector of, for me and not someone who's going to, you know, get out her tissues and, and weep herself. Obviously, I'm overstating it. So what do you think about that? What do you say to those people? What is so wonderful about this practice is I am going to meet with my clients separately. I'm going to get to know them. They're going to get to know me. I am still going to be an advocate, but it's a constructive advocate. I want to find out what really is important to my client. I very often ask how they learn. Um, do you learn by reading, by doing, by listening? And how do you make decisions? Are you comfortable with snap decisions? Do you need time to be deliberate and think about it? I get to understand what's important to my client and be able to be by their side in the most positive, beneficial way. And so they are going to learn from me that I am honest. I'm not weak. 
Honesty does not mean weakness, that we're going to advocate for what they believe is the best possible result for themselves and for their family. This isn't law light. Someone said, well, it's everyone's sitting around singing Kumbaya, and it's not. It's very, very difficult work, but it is done with integrity and professionalism and a forthrightness that I very rarely felt in the court-based system I was a part of for years. You know, I think what you're saying is that really what you're doing as a collaborative attorney and what I think we aspire to in the collaborative model is to empower clients to connect with their core values, their deep felt selves, then their authentic voices and speak their truths in the negotiation from that place instead of from what's really kind of a false sense of bravado or threats that is much more common in the traditional kind of system. Is that right? Yes. And we have time on our side in a collaborative matter. People, usually husbands and wives, process differently. They think at different speeds. They communicate in very different ways. And when the professionals begin to understand how those differences have perhaps led to conflict, we can help people slow down and listen very carefully and be give them a place to feel safe at the table to connect. It doesn't happen immediately. It doesn't even happen all the time. But I'd say in about two-thirds of my collaborative cases, people really have the space to grow emotionally and an ability to communicate so that they're heard. Not everybody, but most of the people that I work with. You're listening to Dialogue on Divorce. This is WVOX 1460 AM and WVOX.com. We're here every other Wednesday from 5 to 5.30, and we're also available as a podcast on iTunes and on my website, www www.westchesterfamilylaw. I'm talking today with Sue Brunsting, a collaborative attorney and trainer from Rochester, New York. And Sue, one thing that you were just talking about is the timing. And it's so funny because sometimes people think that, oh, we can go faster, you know, and, and we'll get through this sooner, which is certainly a possibility in the collaborative model. I think that really what's what's important about the collaborative model is we're able to go at the speed that's right for the people, right? Unlike the court system, which either goes too fast or too slow. That's right. And at least here in Rochester, we're very strong proponents of having at least one neutral as part of our collaborative case. And the lawyers can very quickly, usually, figure out, is that neutral going to be a mental health professional coach? Is a mediator someone who's going to be helpful? A financial neutral child specialists to help the parent, the people with parenting issues, that neutral space can, that neutral role overseeing the process and making sure that it runs as smoothly as possible can be so helpful. And so, we've learned much more about that as we've gone along here in Rochester. So let's talk more about that. I mean, let's talk about, you've, you've used that word neutral maybe five or six times <laughs> in the last minute. And I think because it's a really important word, right. how do you understand the, the power of neutrality? In a collaborative matter, I am an advocate for my client, and I know that the other collaborative lawyer is an advocate for their client. We make a commitment not to be adversarial, but it still could be polarizing. I may see things more through my client's lens, and the the other collaborative lawyer may see things more through their client's lens. Um, We speak openly about that and, and hope to come to understanding, but there's still that dynamic tension. And if there is a neutral 
at the table. Um, I tend to be at my best. It keeps us honest. It keeps us forward moving. There's another set of eyes <laughs> paying attention to the mood at the table, the emotions at the table, making sure the numbers are accurate if it's a financial neutral, um, reminding clients about their children and how there's an impact on their children if it's a child specialist as part of the case. It tends to having a, having that allied professional, having that other than lawyer profession involved tends to shorten the collaborative process by one or two meetings. That's very interesting, Sue Bronstein. Tell us about that, because one thing that people, I find that when I'm talking to clients about the collaborative process and describing the power of the neutral, they often think, oh, just isn't that more expensive? We're just adding someone in who we're going to have to pay to attend meetings. And I think it really is more efficient. But it sounds like you've done some real thinking about quantifying the savings and efficiencies that are involved when using a neutral. Help us understand that. I can speak for Rochester. I'm not sure if it's the same everywhere, but most of the time the lawyer's hourly fee is higher than the child specialist's hourly fee or the neutral financials hourly rate, the coach or the mediator. And so if we just started a, a collaborative case yesterday and the financial neutral was at the table and clients both made arrangements to meet with her separately between the first joint meeting and the second joint meeting, recognizing that together they would be meeting with her and paying her hourly rate rather than two lawyers. <laughs> and it's the same thing with a child specialist. The clients can meet with that person. The person can meet with their children and provide a voice for the children and not involve the lawyers at that double hourly rate that can feel so high. What we do, though, is we integrate the professionals. So our clients are agreeing that the lawyers and the, the neutrals are going to speak with each other and help each other understand where these clients are, where their children are, and make the process run more smoothly. And in my experience, even though it feels like an added expense, if it shortens the process by one or two meetings and makes everybody feel more powerful as they move forward, that's a, a good thing. Yeah, that makes sense. It makes a lot of sense to me. And I think it does make a lot of sense to parties. When did the, the neutral start becoming a part of the collaborative process? You've been doing this for 15 years, Sue Brunsting. And, uh, you know, the collaborative process has evolved over that period of time, because that <laughs> Stu Webb that you mentioned as being the person who was so generous with his time and his materials is the father of collaborative law. Yeah. So this is not exactly something that goes back to sort of the Renaissance in terms of the system. What are some of the, you know, the, there's been this introduction of neutral professionals. There's been the introduction of non-lawyer professionals. What are some of the things that have changed the collaborative process over the years that you think have been particularly beneficial to people going through a divorce? Oh, Catherine, that's a great question. Stu Webb started lawyer only in Minnesota. Um, we didn't know any better in Rochester in 2001. And so we started lawyer only. As Very we did in New York, by the way. I mean, right. New York, metropolitan area. We started lawyer only and very quickly discovered, and I met a mediator, Beth Danahy, and a financial neutral, Donna Mayer, and the two of them shook up, <laughs> shook up my collaborative world. Both of them joined our collaborative group very early on. I know it took about a year and a half before either were involved in cases, but Beth, as a 
person with a master's in conflict resolution, was such a teacher to our collaborative lawyers, having us question our assumptions and continue to ask questions. And then Donna was a financial neutral right from the beginning. And we took a chance, a couple of us, and had her in a collaborative case and watched how smoothly things went. Clients speak differently when asked exactly the same question by a financial neutral than they do when their lawyer asks that question. And so in Rochester, anyway, we we have been slow to do this. Just last year, two practitioners, David Murch and I, both decided that we would not do a collaborative case unless we had at least one neutral as part of the case. And just turning that corner and deciding, I really do my best work when I have the help of a neutral. And it really does lower the cost overall for my client and provide a better service. So 15 years into it, that's the change that I've made. Sue, what else do you think is an interesting or beneficial change in the collaborative model over these years? Early on, there was either a lawyer-only model or there was a model where there were two coaches, one for each client, a financial neutral and a child specialist. There was a great big group of professionals. And what has happened is a hybrids have developed. In our practices, we've learned to work perhaps with a one neutral or two neutrals, depending on what is really going to work, I think, best for our clients. There's also been a transition, at least in Rochester, between mediation and collaborative law. So if folks choose mediation as their process and they need to have consulting lawyers, they are coming to consulting collaboratively trained lawyers. And it makes a difference because we can come together in a five-way meeting and support mediation. So we are discovering ways to work in non-traditional ways, non-traditional sort of methods to help clients based on what they really need. It sounds like what you're talking about is that we're developing a fluency in, in conflict resolution. And and particularly in conflict resolution that's client-focused, party-focused, people-focused, family-focused, rather than law-focused. And that that really has, in your experience, been a benefit for people facing these situations. Yes, it has. So I offer a divorcing couple, clients who are considering divorce, a free half hour, not to answer specific questions about their matter at all, but to let them know what the differences are between settling it themselves at the kitchen table, choosing one mediator, choosing collaborative practice, settlement-oriented, court-based lawyers, and then litigation. And I want people to, to be able to see what the differences are so that they can choose what fits them best. And people always ask, well, what's the least expensive alternative? And I have to answer honestly, you have to choose the one that's right for you. If you choose mediation, for example, but you need more support at the table, you're going to falter. So I want people to have an idea of what the differences are and be able to step through the next part of the process with some confidence. Yeah, and choose a process that really makes sense for their situation, not just on a one particular criteria. Correct. I think is what you're talking about. This is Dialogue on Divorce. I'm Catherine Miller. You are listening to us on WVOX 1460 AM or WVOX.com. We're here alternate Wednesdays from 5 to 5.30.
and are also available on a podcast on www.westchesterfamilylaw.com. Talking today with Suzanne Brunstein. And Sue, I'd like to give you an opportunity to give contact information to our listeners in case they have any questions for you. Oh, thank you. My website is suebrunsting.com. Let's spell that. It's, well, that is S-U-E and then B-R-U-N-S-T-I-N-G, suebrunsting.com. And there is an email contact and a telephone number. And your listeners are welcome to give me a call. If I can't answer their question, I can refer them to to someone who might be able to. Thank you very much for that. So what do you think is, well, let me go back to this. You, You said a few minutes ago that you took a chance when you introduced the neutral. And earlier today, you said that you allowed yourself to feel vulnerable and you gathered this group of lawyers that you trust. And I'm really interested in this idea that there's risk here, you know, for you or for parties. And, you know, in some ways, I believe, you know, nothing ventured, nothing gained. And it may feel to people when they choose mediation or choose collaborative that they are taking a risk. But I think it's a calculated risk. And I think you agree with that and that there's a huge gain to be had for that appearance of risk. What do you think about that? Yes. Um, I think there. I'm not so sure that my clients, once they've spent an hour or an hour and a half with me and we've gotten to know each other. I'm not getting the sense that they're feeling at risk. I agree with that. And and I think there is a great deal to be gained, it, even if, and very few cases have, even if a case falls out and ends up going to court, the sworn statement of net worth is done. The clients very often have worked out a way to work together to parent their children. Very often, a lot of progress has been made, and they might get hung up on something that they feel is intractable. Again, I don't believe anything's intractable and I'll keep working with them, but I've had a few of these cases that have fallen out, not to great destruction for the clients, however. Yeah, so that the appearance of risk and the appearance of this sort of loss of your attorney or loss of progress is really not accurate. What I've explained to folks is the participation agreement that they sign is the power of the process. It means that your lawyers are going to behave differently and we're not going to give up. We are focused on helping them understand one another, gather all of the information they need to make the best possible agreement, and we don't give up easily. My only way of keeping a client is to keep being creative and caring and dogged in a pursuit of a settlement that, that is acceptable to both clients. Sue Brunsting, if you were to give, and I'm sure you've done this numerous times, but one piece of advice to people facing divorce, what would that one piece of advice be? Oh. I know. I call that's a tough one. One piece of advice. All right, Um, two. (laughs) In the time we have left, what would you say? Learn as much as you can before you negotiate or before you step into negotiation. Learn Whether about what? It is, it's learning about yourself, what the other person cares about, reading about child development so you, you understand the best possible outcome for kids. So it's learn. Learn however it is that you learn. Ask questions. There's no dumb question. And prepare yourself. Take care of yourself, too. So that, that's a piece of it. Take care of your health and your emotional well-being. 
Yeah, I think it's really important for people to think about divorce in an integrative way, how it fits into their entire lives and not just as like a sort of one-off crisis. And I think that's what you're kind of advising as well. Yes, I am. Catherine, thank you. Thank you so much for taking the time to be with us on Dialogue on Divorce, Suzanne Brunsting. I really appreciate it, and it's been, it's been wonderful. Thank you, Catherine.